Hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and this is a podcast about communication skills, and I'm a professor of communication studies. Uh, In the last week, we were talking about some interpersonal skills, and I kind of feel like we've spent a, a lot of the episodes on interpersonal communication, so I wanted to pivot away from that for at least this week, if not a couple weeks in a row. And I want to turn to leadership practices. In my program at the University of Waterloo, leadership is one of the courses that we teach. And one of the points of emphasis, I think, in the program is that leaders um, would have excellent communication skills. And what that looks like, I think, is important for our students, at least. Uh, I wanted to talk about one of the more basic leadership communication skills. And that has to do with what's called framing. So this week's episode is going to be devoted to a discussion of framing and framing theory and then some practices of framing. The concept of framing is uh, or has its kind of origins in mass communication research or mass communication theory, and it's generally related to um, what's called the agenda setting tradition and focus or research focus that um, emphasizes how mass media can set agendas. The basics, and and that's going to help us understand how leaders frame things also in a second, but the basis of framing theory is that the media focuses attention on certain events and then places those events within a field of meaning. So framing is an important topic since it can have a big influence on how we perceive or how we map the world. And, uh, but, but, I think it's important to note that framing isn't just something that the media does. We, we all and everyone in leadership position does some framing. In essence, framing theory suggests that how something is presented to the audience, what we might call the frame, influences the choices people make about how to process that information or that, um, that thing that's being presented. Frames are usually metaphorical abstractions that work to organize or structure the meaning of the message. And I think that the most common use of frames is in terms of the frame the news or media place on information that they convey. Um, The news media are thought to influence the perception of the news by the audience. And and in this way, um, sort of uh, news media can be construed as a form of agenda setting. They don't just tell the audience what to think about but they also tell the audience how to think about those issues because they're suggesting that they need to think about those issues in terms of the frame being presented. And this is why Donald Trump consistently rejects the New York Times and CNN, et cetera, as quote-unquote fake news um, because he doesn't accept or doesn't like the frame that the New York Times or the, the CNN or whoever puts on a particular story. What Trump is getting at, however, is the inevitability of framing. You, and the New York Times simply by kind of, or CNN simply by refuting that they're just presenting the facts without a frame, are kind of being disingenuous and a little bit ridiculous. You, you can't present 
from my perspective at least, and from the perspective of communication theory largely, you can't present unframed information in a kind of unadulterated way that just gets downloaded or transmitted in someone's head. That's what we talked about in the very first episode of this podcast. You know, it's not about transmission, it's about what effect have you had. And framing is one of the ways to condition or to make possible certain kinds of effects. This theory was first first articulated by a guy named Irving Goffman under the title Frame Analysis. There's a wonderful article on frame analysis that he's written. Uh, Goffman claims that people interpret what's going on around their world through their primary framework. And this framework is regarded as primary uh, as it's a taken for granted by the users. Its usefulness as a frame doesn't depend on other frameworks. It is the basic view through the basic kind of lens through which we view the world. And if you think about people's hostility toward Barack Obama, um, in one sense, you know, it was a kind of racialized frame from which they were viewing the world. The, the idea that Obama was not a U.S. citizen, the so-called birther movement that Trump perpetuated, uh, relied on a primary frame in which African Americans are not legitimate Americans somehow. There's like a delegitimizing frame going on in the minds of many um, uh, particularly white uh, Americans. Uh, and Goffman writes about this kind of primary frame and the work it's able to do. Goffman argues that there's two distinctions within primary frameworks. There's the natural and the social, and that both play the role of helping individuals interpret the world so that their experiences can be understood in a wider social context. The difference between the two is only functional, really. Natural frameworks identify events as physical occurrences, taking natural kind of literally, and not attributing any social forces to the causation of events. Social frameworks view events as socially driven things. They're due to the whims of goals or manipulations on the part of social players. And social frameworks are often built on natural frameworks. And these frameworks and the frames that they create in our communication influence how we interpret the world, how we process, and how we communicate with one another. Goffman's underlying assumption is that individuals are capable users of these frames on a day-to-day -day basis, whether they're aware of them or not. So how do we frame? Uh, well, one way we frame is to understand things metaphorically, to frame a conceptual idea through a comparison to something else. Uh, another way we frame is through stories, myths, or legends. We can frame a topic via a narrative in a kind of vivid and memorable way. Uh, we can frame things through traditions or rituals or ceremonies or cultural mores that imbue significance to things. We can frame things in terms of slogans or jargons or catchphrase. You know, climate change, as opposed to global warming, is in fact a reframing of the phenomena of the impact of CO2 emissions on the environment. Uh, global warming explicitly frames the problem as the planet getting hotter <laughs> and climate change doesn't suggest that that is at the core of the issue. Um, we often frame things in terms of contrast also. We can describe something in terms of what it's not. Um, and all this is a way of talking what, what might be called what we call kind of today spin. Um, spin is to present a concept, concept in such a way as to convey a value judgment that might not be immediately in, in, in apparent. So to create an inherent bias by definition. Even I gotta, so people get, you know, if, if there's an argument 
um, and there's a disagreement and a robust disagreement and people yelling at each other and really upset, oftentimes someone would say, well, we had a frank and open and honest conversation. So what that person is trying to do is reframe a disagreement as an honest exchange of ideas. Uh, even I got a message like that the other day from, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say these things out loud, but some, someone at my university who said, oh, we had a very open discussion. And what that meant, it was a reframing of the discussion as like, you know, a bunch of people were yelling and upset and angry. Um, it was reframed as honest and honesty has a higher value than anger. Uh, so that the, the thing had to be reframed. For, so framing is in many ways tied very closely to what's called the agenda setting. And they both focus on how the media draws the attention of the public's eye to specific topics and then therefore set the agenda. But framing takes that step further in the way in which uh, we understand how the frame is constructed on certain linguistic choices. And those linguistic choices might be made by journalists, media outlets, but they're also generally made by leaders in any kind of leadership situation. Framing is the way a communication source, so in this case, a leader, constructs a piece of information to make it meaningful. It's an unavoidable part of human communication because we all bring our own frames to our own communication habits or practices. So um, I want to talk for a second about one of my favorite frames or one of the most obvious frames, um, and that is re uh, related to the American electoral process. And um, so I used to watch a lot of The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was still the... Um, but still on it. Um, and I remember the both George W. Bush elections and um, Barack Obama elections. Uh, oftentimes during those presidential elections, the election itself was, quote unquote, a race for the White House. So I, I just want to take that sentence in and of itself as an example of the power of framing. So it's called a race to the White House. Now, Immediately, the word I want to point out the fact that the word race is being used metaphorically or as a trope in the rhetorical tradition. And what that means is that it's not literally a race. The two candidates for the presidency are not running side by side to the finish line, which is the White House. But comparing the electoral process to a race does frame the event in specific ways and make it, makes it meaningful in specific ways. So the question becomes, how does framing the electoral process as a race have material effects or consequences? Well, what does it take to win a race? Uh, it often takes athletic skill. Um, it takes endurance. It takes energy. Um, what about the people that show up to a race? What are they doing? Often those that are, that are at a race are cheering. They cheer, and their cheering is a demonstration of their support for one of the other people in the race. What happens at the end of the race? Well, there's a winner and a loser. And uh, the winner gets the kind of accolades or um, gets certain advantages, and the loser just sort of goes away. Um, Framing the electoral process in this way 
has the tendency to suggest that we ought to prefer the more physically fit of the the candidates or the candidate best able to um, metaphorically run faster or outmaneuver or outsmart his or her opponent. And many of these things are kind of typical of American political conversations. When the... Um, now, when CNN or, or any kind of news outlets run, run runs a poll, the poll is usually an indication of who has more fans, whose cheering section is louder. And then this is often graphically displayed for us where, you know, if you think about a bar graph, there's two bars and, you know, uh, Barack Obama has a 58% approval rating and John McCain has a 48% approval rating and the one bar is ahead of the other bar, it's higher up. That's a visual kind of representation of the frame of the competitive race. So when we do this in class, I teach this in persuasion, I ask my students inevitably, well, is there another way to frame the American electoral process besides as a race? And they actually struggle. They have a hard time coming up with some sort of alternative frame. And then eventually, one, some student is always like, well, you know, maybe it's a job interview instead of a race. So I said, okay, like, what, what if we frame the... This is not as a race for the White House, but uh, America interviews the job candidates for presidency. Well, how does that position the American public? That kind of framing positions the American public not as a cheering section with those foam fingers and you know loud shouting. And it means that candidates couldn't or wouldn't necessarily think highly of pep rallies, the kind of pep rallies that Donald Trump is very fond of right now. Instead, the public would be conceptualized as the person doing the hiring. And if they're conceptualized as the person doing the hiring, then what are those people looking for? Well, they're looking for, odds are they're looking for experience, uh, education, and the right skill set to effectively do the job. I mean, many of us will have seen or witnessed or participated in a job hiring process. And that job hiring process is often not about athletic skill. It's not about who has more endurance or who's faster um, or who's got more fans. It's about, do you have your educational background? Do you have relevant experience? Do you have knowledge and, and skills that are applicable to this particular position? Um, but the American electoral process is not framed like that. It's, it's framed differently. If it were framed like that, there would be different consequences for how the candidates get evaluated and what kinds of information gets put on screen or, or transmitted to the public or broadcast or how we even conceptualize ourselves. So right now, I think the biggest problem in the American political process is that um, CNN, New York, the New York Times, Fox News, whatever, they go and ask people, so what do you think? Do you support Donald Trump? Do you like him? Um, what they're asking is inside the frame of the race. They're asking you know, who they're a fan of. And they're also asking kind of what policies are they a fan of? What policies do they support? Um, I don't see how that contributes to the democratic experiment at all. But the frame is so powerful that we're conceptualizing the public as just supporters or cheerers or cheerleaders for particular people or for particular policies. It's not framed as, you know, what kinds of skills, information, or knowledge do you have about the question at hand? Um, you know, how would you judge or determine who's best able to evaluate or make policy on this particular issue, et cetera. We're not framing it in those ways. Um, 
I work right now in a, on, on a program and uh, every once in a while I'll have a meeting where all of the kinds of the health or viability or well-being of the program can only be conceptualized in terms of economics. So people want to ask questions about how economically it feasible it is to run particular sections of classes, how much money it'll cost, what the cost benefit is for the student, etc. Um, I find that odd, especially odd in a, a university setting, because that's not my primary frame. My primary frame in developing this program is to ask what's in the best interest of the students? What do the students get from this thing? How are the students advantaged by participating in this particular program? Not how much does it cost or what are the economic cost or the economic costs of this particular thing? So it's not just in, in large scale things like American electoral processes where we engage in frames, but framing is, is really everywhere. Uh, any, every situation gets framed in a particular way. Now, usually the person in a leadership position has the most authority and the most say over how something gets framed in particular because their language will establish the framework within which others have to work. And it's very, very difficult to resist that frame. Largely in America, the, the, so not only is American electoral politics framed as a race, but once you get into the particular race, the race is then framed around certain issues. So there's often a contest between frames. Um, and crooked Hillary is was Donald Trump's way of framing Hillary Clinton as corrupt. So the first way in which to understand Hillary is, is she corrupt or not corrupt? Um, and once that's the frame for interpreting her actions, you begin to pay attention to some things and not some other things. Uh, so, for example, her experience or uh, you know her experience in governing is discounted against the frame of corruption, non-corruption. Um, so, oftentimes, the person in the leadership position or the person that wins debate at the debate is the person whose frame is accepted by the largest number of people and the person whose frame has most others working in it. So the question I often ask my students is to pay attention to the ways in which, uh, in which things are being framed for them and the moments at which there might be utility in resisting framing, in resisting the larger conceptual picture and trying to suggest an alternative or a different or an unusual frame um, that might contradict or suggest a different way of making sense of information in any given context. Um, the second thing I tell my students is that one day when they're in, in positions of leadership, they have to be very, very careful to how they frame things. And you have to frame things in ways that others can get the most amount of work done and that makes the most sense to others, given other people's already existing frames, etc. And then I tell them if they're in a contest over leadership roles, if there's kind of like a debate over who's going to change, going to assume a leadership position, the the you know it's not necessarily the person who has the greatest institutional authority or the greatest decision-making authority that is the actual leader. The actual leader is the person who's able to symbolically frame the situation that gets most other people to accept or work within that frame. So if you have a boss and the boss is being particularly difficult or short-sighted or not thinking strategically, etc., but you don't have the opportunity to become the boss, 
that's perfectly fine. You can lead by framing. You can choose or attempt to reframe a particular situation in a way that makes more sense to your, to your sensibilities and your interests and your commitments and then get the others around you to buy that frame. And then if the leader, the person, the actual inst- position of institutional authority accepts or works within that frame, then you've done a whole heck of a lot of work and are actually leading the, the organization or the culture or the movement or the decision-making process. That's called leading from behind in a certain way where you don't have the institutional position positionality of the leader, but you've engaged in this kind of form of symbolic framing that others have agreed to or accepted or, or decided that they're going to work with it. So framing is a, is a really, really powerful tool for leaders to engage in. Um, but, so I, I want to conclude by reminding you of a couple things. Number one, I don't believe anything comes unframed. Most communication theory scholars don't really think so either. Framing is part of the communicative process because meaning or information don't get just transmitted to us without a frame. So we should be always attending to the way in which something is framed for us or the way in which we're framing something in response. Leadership involves effectively framing things so that other people can uh, accept or work within the frame that we've presented. That's a kind of necessary attribute of an effective leader. Anyway, okay, that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And I'll be back next week with some more on communication practices that we might find helpful. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good week.